According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me in Proverbs 17. Proverbs 17, we're looking at verses 7 and 8. I think we've wrapped up everything out of 7. We ready to move on to 8 and 9 this morning. Very practical proverbs related to public life and daily life and other applications. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father for His faithfulness to set aside our distractions, to humble us under the authority of His Word. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your faithfulness, rejoicing in the time that we have together to study, to grow. Father, to, uh, to hunger and thirst after righteousness. I thank you that in your faithful promise, Father, that as we hunger and thirst, we are satisfied. We thank you that uh, the believer who trusts in you will never be disappointed. So, Father, we call upon your faithfulness once again to open the eyes of our understanding. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Not feeling the greatest this morning, but hopefully we'll get through the hour and we'll see how it goes. We've been dealing with uh, the contrast between fools and nobles. When it says in verse 7, excellent speech is not fitting for a fool, much less are lying lips to a prince. And this is a verse that needs some help, it needs some exegetical work, uh, some translation assistance, because uh, it's not our normal word for fool. We've been studying fools for the whole time, right? Proverbs is full of fools. And uh, we're supposed to grow in wisdom and and not be foolish and not be naive and and all that. So we're very comfortable with the fool vocabulary in Proverbs, just it's not here. This is not the term that we typically have throughout the book of of Proverbs. This is Naval. And if you think about Nabal, the story of Nabal and Abigail in, uh, in 1 Samuel, then you know the story. Nabal is indeed a fool, and Abigail, his wife, was certainly a lot, a lot better, and he didn't deserve her, <laughs> and we know how that works. Um, but the idea of a fool is not just a wisdom deficiency. This really is a sociological statement. Both expressions are. And so sociologically, the fool is the, uh, the one that is a detriment to your society, the detriment to your, to your culture. And so more than just his lack of wisdom comes uh, his his thought process, his behavior, his actions, the things that he, his attitudes that, that harm his society, that harm his community, as opposed to the other side, the, the noble. And there it's translated prince. And again, that's, I'm not dazzled by the translation on that because the idea of nobility is the, is the concept of generosity. And so we have a sociological noble and uh, those that are contributors to your society. And so, who are the givers and who are the takers when we're just talking politically, you know, socio-politically and, the, and those that are contributing to the, to the society and as uh, we call them, fine, upstanding members of society, right? That they're your fellow citizens, they are taxpayers, they are, um, they are uh, who they are. And so that's really what's being contrasted here. And then in terms of excessive speech, excessive speech is not fitting for the fool, much less lying lips to the prince. And so we spent a couple of weeks actually just on that one verse all by itself, and that's taken uh, some effort to deal with. So speech must be fitting in those two illustrations of what's especially unbefitting 
uh, then come out in the A part and the B part of this uh, of this verse. The navel versus the noble. That is the sociological fool versus the sociological uh, nobility related to that. All right. Talked about excessive speech and then deceptive speech. And uh, in particular, why is it? It's wrong for anybody to lie. Anyone that deceives is is sinning against the Lord. Uh, but uh, this, I don't think this text is really dealing with the sin issue per se so much as the damage that's that's being done to uh, to the culture, the, to the society. And so, uh, those that you expect to be truthful, those you expect to have integrity, uh, and when they are deceptive. Now you've got problems. You've got problems in your city, in your town, your community, and so forth. If the, if the mayor is a liar, and the city council are liars, and the prosecutor's a liar, and the judge is a liar, and, and you, just, you start to wonder, is there any honest person left in, uh, in our culture? And if, if we're just surrounded by nothing but liars, then how does a, how does a, society, a society function on that basis? It becomes, uh, it becomes problematic, to say the least. All right. Let's get to the next section here then, which is verse 8, when we talk about sins of the tongue. And, uh, oh, we did that already, too. We did that already. Did we not? Sins of the tongue, maybe we didn't. Sins of the tongue are offenses against God's essence and His attributes of truth. So let's make sure we're solid on this, and then we can proceed forward. Because this, too, I think, is, uh, yes, there are sins, Yes, they are offenses against God, but then they also have that destructive influence in our culture, that devastating effect, true in society, true in families, true in marriages, true in local churches. You know, regardless of of what social venue you're dealing with, sins of the tongue are going to tear it apart, okay? Lies, gossip, slander, all these sins of the tongue, the, uh, the, the, the destructive lips, that we see here, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be devastating to your city, to your marriage, to your family, to your church, uh, to your workplace, whatever, whatever the uh, social grouping is where you've got a, a bunch of humans together. <laughs> the sins of the tongue just rip it up and it's, it's devastating the way that it happens. And so this, I think, um, is, is worth exploring as well. So let's turn to John 8.44 and realize how, remind ourselves how foundational this is. It really comes down to the stark contrast between uh, God and Satan. The stark contrast between uh, God who is the God of truth and Satan who is the the liar and the father of lies. And uh, so as you and I operate in the angelic conflict as ambassadors, as priests, as soldiers, as just believers in the Christian way of life, this question between truth and the lie is uh, is is really uh, uh, foundational to our Christian walk. So, uh, in the context of John chapter eight, we have growing hostility between the Lord and the Pharisees, and um, as he's talking about the light and, and uh, the testifying related to the light, and as he is speaking these things in verse thirty, many came to believe in him. And so we want to have a, a clear recognition there that they are now saved, that they are believing in Christ. And so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him. So it's one thing if you have a general message to the public or a general message to unbelievers, but now he's focusing on just the believers, just those that have responded by faith. 
saying, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And this, like I said, that's why this is foundational to our Christian walk because uh, simply becoming saved, born again, that's the first step in in the will of God for your life. But it's not the last step. It's the beginning, not the end of his purpose. In other words, it's not sufficient in the plan of God to simply be saved and then wait to go to heaven when you die. That we're saved unto good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them and we're saved to grow. God doesn't want to populate heaven with a, with a, a, a heaven full of babies. He's, he's not, uh, Jesus didn't go to heaven to prepare the greatest nursery in the universe for a bunch of babies to go populate for, forever. Uh, he wants us to grow. So we're supposed to live in the Word of God. And so Speaking to believers, he gives them this if, what does it take to become a disciple? And to become a disciple, it's not a synonym for a believer, to become a disciple then you have to live, abide, continue, remain in the Word of God. Then, look at the consequence, it centers on truth, okay? The consequence, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And so knowing the truth, fully knowing the truth, living it out is a freedom, freedom from the sin issue, see. And so the, uh, in my mind, uh, the, the, those that are saved that have their sins positionally forgiven, but they're not living in the Word of God, they don't have the freedom they're supposed to have in the abundant life in Christ. Because they have positional salvation, eternal positional forgiveness of their sins, but the experience in time is they're still under bondage. They're still under bondage, practically speaking, in the experience of their sin. That uh, they're faced with a temptation and they jump at it every time. Because they don't, they're not living in the truth that sets them free from those sin temptations. They're not, and if you're not living in the truth, you're just as worldly as the unbeliever. Conform to this world, we're told in Romans chapter 12. So truly to have freedom from the experiential sin snares requires living in the Word of God and functioning as a true disciple. So you will know the truth, the truth will set you free. And so this is what we're called to be. As believers, as disciples, we should know the truth. That means we have a different father from this other crowd. And that's what we see as we proceed through this text. And so um, gives you an idea how delusional they are in verse 33. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and we have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How, how insane is that? They were birthed in slavery. They were slaves in Egypt before the Exodus. And, and at various times throughout the judges they were enslaved by the Philistines and, and all kinds of other groups. And, and then they had a captivity uh, taken away by the Assyrians, taken away by the Babylonians. Even now, at the moment that Jesus is having his ministry, they are under bondage to the Roman uh, authorities, that they have a Roman governor that's over them. They are not a free people. But that's okay, Jesus isn't talking politically anyway, so he said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And that's what we should have been, what we were saved out of. He delivered us from the slave market of sin. So positionally, we were brought out of that slave market Sadly, though, experientially, believers run right back to there again when they decide to be carnal, when they decide to not live their lives according to the Word of God. And, uh, and so they're no longer the slave by birth at that point. They're the slave by choice at that point. 
They're the slave that was given a release and that said, oh no, I don't want to be released. I love my master. And they pierce their ear with an awl and they say, I want to be, I want to serve you forever. And so that's, in my mind, that's worse. The last estate is worse than the first because when you're an unbeliever born in Adam, that's just, you know, condemned by the grace of God, waiting to be saved by the grace of God. But when you as a believer voluntarily go back to a lifestyle of of sin, man, you've given yourself over and the hand of God's judgment will give you over and, and all the rest. So everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Uh, verse 36, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And so you can just see as the, as the hostility builds in this, I think um, he says in verse 37, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, so you're racially Jewish, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. And, uh, and that's, we could say similar things with respect to born-again believers. We could say, yeah, I know you're saved. I know you have eternal life, but the Word of God is not living in you and the things you're intending to do are just evil, unbiblical, wrong. So he says in verse 38, I speak the things which I have seen from my Father, therefore you also do the things which you heard from your Father. And he's just laying it out there. There's no concord between light and darkness. We've got different fathers from the unbelievers. And uh, that upsets them. <clears throat> so they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Again, like racial purity has something to do with anything. And Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. You know, he believed in God. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from, the, from God, this Abraham did not do. You were doing the deeds of your father. And so deceiving yourself and being intent on murder, there's no question they are of the devil, that they are chips off the old block, that uh, he was a liar from the beginning, he was a murderer from the beginning. And now they're living in their own self-delusion and they're bent on murdering Jesus Christ. You are doing the deeds of your father. So they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one Father, God. And uh, of course there's an insult in this where they uh, are, are referring you know, to the fact. I mean, your, your village knows, your, your, your clan knows, your tribe may come to know depending on, on things. Uh, I think this is a veiled um, criticism of his, the circumstances of his birth that Mary and Joseph were engaged but not yet uh, married. And then, uh, you know, you can, you can look at the birthday on the calendar and then you can figure, you know, wait a minute, they didn't have nine months there from, of being married and, uh, hmm, you know. And you can then start the little whispering and the rumors and the slander and, and all the rest about the circumstances of the person's conception. And say, there you go. We were not born of fornication, hinting that he was hinting that Joseph and Mary were immoral before, before marriage. We have one Father, God. So Jesus said to them, if God were your Father, and this is uh, the counterfactual we've studied before, very powerful logic, because it's not true. But if it was true, you would love me, for I proceeded forth uh, and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but He sent me. This is the Father's plan, and the Son has agreed to execute that plan. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. 
When you're a slave to the lie, truth just seems wrong to you. It doesn't resonate. In fact, the truth will seem like a lie, and your lie becomes your new truth then in the insanity of your subjective slavery. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Remember, he's a slanderer. That's what devil means. And so there's no question that sins of the tongue from lying and slander and everything else comes from, uh, from his influence. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. That's, that's unusual. I mean, very usual in the Bible, but unusual for us in our culture. We don't often put lies and murder in tandem. We don't talk about being a murderer and being a liar, but the Bible does. The Bible puts those together time and time again. Both of them are attacks on the truth of God, on the life of God, and we see it here. He uh, does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. (laughs) And so because, again, that's their lost estate. That's the nature of it. And they're not suited to, uh, it's like a foreign language and they're not fluent. They're fluent in lie. They're not fluent in truth. And so when someone speaks the truth, it's like, you know, like an alien from some other planet speaking Klingon or something. And it just, it just does not resonate with their, uh, with their views. All right. So which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. And this, uh, to me, this is the great parallel with 1 Corinthians 2, the fact that the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. But he who is spiritual, if you're of God, if you have a living human spirit, when you're born again, you receive that living human spirit upon which, now that with the living human spirit, you can understand the things of God. The, the Word of God will then come alive as you, uh, as you hear it, as you study it. All right. And so we have the issue there. Offenses against God's essence and the attributes of truth. Also, offenses against His essence and attributes of love. And oftentimes we don't think about this because lie and truth are kind of opposites, but love is also a deficiency when you tell a lie. That uh, to lie to your brother, is that's not an act of love. That uh, we should be speaking the truth in love. And uh, the, in fact, deceiving is, uh, is, is uh, not a loving act. And uh, that's true, again, we can apply this in marriage, we can apply this in family, in, in churches, in business, in whatever the, uh, the relationship is. Think about how long does a marriage last if there's no truth between the husband and the wife? That's, that's a marriage that's not going to last, I'll tell you that. You got the husband's got to be truthful, the wife's got to be truthful. And same thing, if, if, if they're not truthful, is, it, is there really any, any love? How, how can there be love without truth? And uh, the application there. So marriage, family, local churches, and uh, uh, you know, if the pastor's lying about everything, why would you listen to him? <laughs> why would you listen to any biblical teaching if, if the guy's just a liar? All right. Passages on love as it connects to truth. How about Micah 7.19? We don't get to Micah very often. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. 
This is the great into the depths of the sea passage. And uh, I have the right verse on this. Ah, yeah, there's unchanging love there. Yeah. All right. But there's also truth. And uh, waiting for the God of my salvation. Ah, you will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham in verse 20. So yeah. So as we look at verses 18 and following, who, who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnants of his possession. So we just were thrilled to the fact that we are a redeemed people, and we have a God, we have a Savior, and there's no one like him. He does not retain his anger forever because he, he delights in unchanging love. This is the chesed of the Hebrew language. This is a marvelous thing, and he has this delight, not against rebellion, uh, but faithfulness. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham. Look at that tandem. That tandem of truth and love which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. And of course the love is unconditional. The love does not keep a list of wrongs. The love is based on the character of the one loving. Everything that we know from the New Testament as it pertains to agape, uh, we have here uh, included in the chesed blessing, unchanging love uh, that's promised there. Truth and love. How about 1 Corinthians 13, 6? I use this one quite a bit these days. It comes up every so often. And usually it comes up when I'm speaking with a Christian that's compromising his standards as it relates to the uh, sexual immorality of our culture. And uh, they're trying to show acceptance and so forth to a, a fornication rebellion against the plan of God. And they use the word love to define it. Say, well, I want to show love. And uh, lying about it is not love. All right? And, uh, and, and of course, the enemy is abusing love, saying, well, love is love, and who are you to tell me who I can or cannot love? And uh, I'm not telling you who you can or cannot love, I'm telling you who you can't fornicate with. How about that? <laughs> you know, Because God designed one man and one woman to be married together, and that is the boundaries for the sexual relationship. It's called the marriage bed. And so um, we have the clear teaching of Scripture on this. But if you want to abuse the definition of love, well then go back to Scripture and, and remind yourself what love is and what love does and what love does not do. And uh, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. And just take it right there and, and, and ask the, the Lord for the conviction of what this is all about. But uh, rejoicing in unrighteousness, that's not love. And if you want to celebrate a perversity and go march in a parade or whatever or, or uh, send a gift and a card and a, uh, a we're happy for you acknowledgement at their so-called marriage that's not a marriage, their so-called wedding that's not a wedding, uh, if, you want to, if you want to be a partaker in the deeds of darkness, 
uh, look out because the God of truth is not partaking in those deeds of darkness and you will, uh, you will be basically volunteering for the shared discipline as you uh, are a partaker in those things. I don't want to be a partaker in those things. So it does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. And so you spell it out there. You say, well, that's narrow-minded. Yes, it is. <laughs> truth is always narrow. The lie is always broad. And it always, always works that way. Truth is specific. If you, if you identify with truth as, the, as what corresponds to reality, then that's very limited. It is what it is. And everything else is not that. Okay, And so by definition, this is just rational, logical thought. A is not not A. And not A can be everything under the sun. B, C, D, E, do the whole alphabet and, and more. Every non-A is not A. So truth is exclusive. And that's not a criticism. That's a blessing. That's a joy. And uh, and uh, and we're going to stand for the truth of the Word of God, that's the way it just got to be. And so uh, it's described there. Ephesians 4.15 If you're not willing to speak the truth in love, you're a part of the problem here in this instability. Verse 11 says, He gives some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. These are the equipping gifts for the church age. The apostles and prophets are now gone, so what are we left with? We're left with evangelists and pastor teachers. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's our goal. That's why we're here. And so as a result, we're no longer to be children. We all start as children. You're born, it's not your fault, you're born as a child. Every child is born a child, okay? You know, Kevin and Catherine and their little baby is uh, just a child. It's the way it works. And when you just get saved, that's the way it works. You're a child, you're an infant, you've got to grow. We're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. You're vulnerable. Children are vulnerable. Children are designed to be trusting and believing. They should be sponges to soak up truth from their parents and to be learning all kinds of things. Well, that nature, that childish, childlike nature, is uh, because it is, uh, you know, soaks up things, means it can soak up bad things, means it can be deceived. It means you can... You can easily lead them down the wrong path and that's why parenting is such an awesome responsibility. You don't want to lead them down a, a bad path. All right. But speaking the truth in love. Really, speaking, it's kind of an idiom. The verb is not, there's no verb of speaking in the verse. The verb is taking the noun aletheia and making a verb out of it. Right? So we do the same thing in English if you you know, Google used to be a noun until we made a verb out of it when you just start Googling things. And, uh, and we, we do the same thing with other nouns. Other nouns can become verbs uh, just through usage. Well, this is aletheia truth that's been made a verb. So we might just say truthing. 
but truthing one another in love. Truthing one another in love. And that would include speaking, and that would include everything. Our, our, uh, our actions towards one another are, should be loving actions. Our speech towards one another should be loving speech. Uh, our attitudes towards one another should be uh, loving attitudes. And it's truthing. Truthing in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. So we don't want to defy the love of God with deception or other sins of the tongue or slander or talebearing. We're going to get into, uh, when we get into verse 9 of our chapter, this, we've got the idea about covering sin or repeating the matter. Another sin of the tongue is just devastating. If, uh, if you learn something and you just can't wait to go spread it to as many people as you can to show off what you know or to, or to, uh, to bring the person down, what, what's that about? What in the world is that about? How does that edify? How does that bless? How does that... So we'll talk about that as well when we get into verse 9. Uh, 1 John 3.18 Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Again, there's a link between love and truth in a lot of passages in ways we maybe didn't even realize how connected love and truth truly are. But there it is. Let us love, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Because yeah, anyone can say, I love you, but uh, is it true? And do the deeds reflect that truth? All right, now we're going to talk about bribery. Proverbs 17, 8. I thought to teach this verse we might illustrate with some practical bribery instances, if you'd like. Uh, we'll just take a few minutes and uh, I, will, I will allow you to bribe me with anything you'd like. I'm joking. All right. Um, we don't need to illustrate because we've seen it all our lives. We've seen uh, in, in many venues, bribes work. And they work, and they work, and they work uh, because of our fallen nature, because of a lot of reasons of how this world is, is structured, bribes work. And so we learn it in, as children, we see it in, in school, we see it in culture, we see it within family, sadly. And, and there are many places where we see it in the workplace, then we see it in politics, it's called campaigning. And uh, you're, you're making campaign promises and uh, and it's uh, it's just it's it's the way it works, and so when we're looking at Proverbs seventeen eight here, again in our culture a bribe is a charm, that is a stone of uh, of fortune. A bribe is a charm in the sight of its owner. Wherever he turns, he prospers. And it strikes many as kind of strange to have in the Bible like this in the book of Proverbs and. And, and yet Proverbs does teach very practically the way we're supposed to think, the way the world thinks, and uh, we want to rightly divide so that we can imitate the proper attitude and avoid the improper attitude. Clearly this is worldly, this is improper. 
We want no part of this. But it works like a charm. It works like a charm. It's like you've got a lucky rabbit's foot and, uh, and you need something to happen, so you rub your lucky ma- uh, rabbit's foot and it happens. And there you go. You need something to happen? Well, you're in trouble? Well, you need something? Well, I know how to grease the skids. It's just a matter of, uh, you know, uh, paying the right person at the right time and the right amount and things get handled. Things are taken care of. It is a charm in the sight of its owner. Wherever he turns, he prospers. So bribery works in this present cosmos, but it is an offense against God's essence and attributes of justice. And uh, his people were commanded not to take a bribe. When he established a theocracy in the Old Testament under Mosaic law, bribery was out of bounds. Bribery was wrong. It was an offense. And uh, it was an attack against God's justice. So let's start with that and then we'll continue the point because the effectiveness of such things for this fallen world is normally undeniable. It works every time. There's only one instance that the Bible says where a bribe is no help whatsoever. It's the only place where a bribe will fail. And uh, it's in Proverbs 6. We've already taught it. In any event, bribery is an offense against God's essence and attributes. Still in the same chapter, when you glance down to verse 23... It says, a wicked man receives a bribe from the bosom to pervert the ways of justice. To pervert the ways of justice. And that's why you bribe the person. Because the ways of justice are not on your favor. And if, if justice was blind, and if, if the laws of justice were applied equally and evenly, well then, uh, then it would be what it would be. It would be the absolute standard. The facts would be learned and and, uh, and then the, uh, the sentence or the adjudication would follow. And, uh, and it would just be a matter of course. Well, if, uh, if you're on the wrong side of the justice, in other words, if you're the guilty party, and you don't want to be found guilty, well, then you've got to pervert the justice. Um, and you've got to uh, find some way to have it not adjudicated uh, against you. And um, that's, uh, you know, just because you did it doesn't mean you're guilty, Right? Well, that's, uh, that's a defense attorney trying to drum up some business. <laughs> All right. And that's, uh, that's interesting. So, um, yeah, a wicked man receives a bribe from the bosom to pervert the ways of justice. And so then you've got to ask yourself, is, is every judge wicked? Is there a righteous judge left? Is there someone that can't take a bribe or won't take a bribe? Who's left? that's not been affected by the, um, the mentality of this fallen cosmos. Well, you would have to be a born-again believer transformed by the Word of God. Exodus 23.8. Back to the Exodus and the establishment of this theocracy. The only time God ever established a theocratic nation on this earth whereby the laws that he gave them are fitting. The laws that he gave them are a model. If, uh, if a Gentile nation wanted to replicate them uh, for the Gentile nation's blessings, it would be a marvelous idea because these are the laws that reflect God's character, his essence, his nature, the things that please him and displease him uh, can be exhibited in this law. And so... Um, yeah, verse 8 of Exodus 23. If I would back up. Um, hmm. 
Verse 1 says, you shall not bear false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Um, So lying in, in cooperation with other liars to make it appear to be the truth. You shall not follow the masses in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice. Going with the crowd because it's the easier road is still wrong if uh, they're doing evil and they're uh, perverting justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. Don't just side with a poor guy because, well, he needs a break. And, well, the rich guy can afford it. So let's just uh, award him this this huge settlement because... uh, this is the new, uh, the legal system is the, is the lottery for folks who can get a, a jury to, to side with them. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. It's not uh, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Uh, you know, it's theft. It's your neighbor's donkey. It's not yours. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. And uh, in other words, you're not, why does the animal suffer because you can't stand, or that guy, the, the human can't stand you? Uh, show some grace and help the human who hates you, and uh, be a blessing there to the donkey. You shall not pervert the justice due your needy brother in his dispute. You can go both ways. You can pervert it one direction or the other direction. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent or the righteous for I will not acquit the guilty. When there is a perversion of justice, the God of truth, um, he uh, he sees that. He takes action. Verse uh, 8, you shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of the just. It's plain and simple. And uh, taking a bribe, receiving a gift, receiving a thing of value, and then uh, how objective can you be when a case comes before you and, and uh, you've received all these nice things from this, from this uh, business person or this person, this friend, as the case may be. All right. Perverting justice. Uh, subverting the cause of the just. It blinds the clear-sighted. All of these are the reasons that are given whereby in their culture, in their society, bribery is, uh, is out of bounds. Even though it works, right? It works. So there are other, I don't know, this point is, is actually useful in other realms as well. Um, I've, I've, I've dealt with people that, that have different viewpoints than me related to um, the, 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 the psychopharmacological products that are out there, the antidepressants and some of the other things. Um, they feel like they need to, to supplement the Bible with chemicals, they want to supplement the word of the Bible teaching from their pastor with secular Freudian uh, psycho- psychological counseling and things of that nature. And they really end up with a, with a syncretism, with a blend of Freud with the Bible and chemicals on top of that. And I'm, I'm, very, I'm very down on, <laughs> on uh, I, I promote uh, Martin and Deidre Bobgan and the Psychoheresy Awareness uh, Ministry. I think they're marvelous and uh, very biblical in their approach to the shepherding of souls, the biblical care of souls that God has provided all things pertaining to life and godliness. Well, what, what brings me to this, to this issue here, though, is because one of the great objections is, well, you just don't understand that this works. This works. When I drug my child 
His behavior is different. Okay. It works. And that's the thing. They say it works. The counseling helps. The drugs work. Okay. Never mind, of course. I mean, functionally, it's, it's methamphetamines. Okay. I mean, you're, you're just, it, but you're getting it from a doctor instead of from a, a thug on wherever. Okay. I used to know the parts of town. That was my former career when I was, <laughs> you know, we talk about Runberg or 12th and Chacon, or we talk about different neighborhoods where you could obtain those, those uh, undocumented pharmacist uh, services, okay? Because it works. Well, wait a minute, okay? There's other things that they say work, and there's some, uh, and they substitute for spirituality, and, and it's not a shepherd and teaching the Bible in a local church. Instead, it's uh, these encounter groups or it's these um, uh, accountability partners. We're going to put two sinners together. We're going to confess our sins. And they think they got a verse in James 5 that sanctions what they're doing. But it's not, it's not the biblical model of a shepherd in a local church equipping the saints for the work of service. But then they come up with this excuse. They say, oh, well, it works. So our passage this morning, I think, is very useful. Bribery works. That doesn't make it right. The Bible says bribery perverts justice. All right? So yes, Proverbs 17, 8, bribery works. It's like a charm. It works every time. But Exodus 23, it perverts justice. Don't accept a bribe. Don't give a, don't give a bribe. Deuteronomy 16.19 You shall not distort justice, you shall not be partial, and you shall not take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall pursue, that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God has given you. So if you have a land that is serving the God of truth and justice by a legal system that honors the truth and justice. Or you have a land that honors the liar and the father of lies by perverting justice. Uh, well, quite clearly, you've got, you're going to face geopolitical consequences that the hand of God's discipline will be upon the land that is defying his standards. Still in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 27 and verse 25. Cursed, 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 cursed. See all the curseds in this chapter? It's supposed to get your attention. Cursed is he who accepts a bribe to strike down an innocent person. And all the people shall say, Amen. All right, cursed. Now the effectiveness of such a thing for this fallen world is normally undeniable. The fact that it works we, we recognize that. It's a part of being shrewd as a serpent and harmless as a dove. It's part of just having your eyes open to the fallen world we live in. We look around, we see the fallen world, we see perverted justice, and we recognize, yep, that's how this fallen world works. We're not going to be party to it. We're not going to take advantage of it. We're not going to start manipulating it. But we're not going to be ignorant of it either. And it's not only Proverbs 17 by itself that says such things, but we'll also notice it in Proverbs 18. A man's gift makes room for him, 
and brings him before great man. You spread a little money around and doors open. How about that? You give presents, there'll be, uh, there'll be favorable re- responses as far as making room, coming before a great man. If, uh, if you're going to, depending on what social circles you're in, if, uh, if you want to move up to uh, higher social circles, well, you've got to pay some dues. There's, there, you've got you to spread some gifts around. You've got to start moving in those circles, which is going to require some, uh, you know, got to bring the gifts. Bring the gifts. And what's the difference between a gift and a bribe? Right, yeah. If it's a grace gift, it's freely given without strings attached. Correct. Like our salvation. It's a, it's a free gift without strings attached. But in, this, in these contexts, in these applications, when you're giving these gifts to powerful men, why are you giving these gifts to powerful men? And why are you trying to have room made for you? You want room made for you? What does that mean? You're looking for a promotion? You're trying to get a, a, a job offer? Well, a gift would be helpful. <laughs> That's how the world works. All right. And uh, bring him before great men. Well, I'll tell you what, I can't help you, but I know someone who can. And if you need an introduction, well, I can, uh, I can make that happen. I can introduce you to the people you need to know. But of course, you've got to take care of me to get you there. Proverbs 21.14 A gift in secret subdues anger. So that's the small bribe. But a bribe in the bosom, all right, now we're talking, that can subdue even strong wrath. So there's an intensification between the A part and the B part of that verse. And so um, between the gift in secret and the bribe in the bosom, you just had to, just had to give over a little bit more. And, uh, and, you, and it works. And it works. Uh, even Jesus testifies. He says, you know what? <coughs> Luke 16. This is a hard episode to teach. And... Um, it almost seems counterintuitive. But, and, and then when Jesus concludes it the way that he does, I find that it's profound. I find that it's, it's actually a, a remarkable perspective, a mature perspective for how a biblicist that fears God lives in a fallen world and keeps himself unstained by the world, uh, but he is shrewd as a serpent and he, and he knows full well how this world works. And so you have an unrighteous steward and uh, this rich man had a manager, a steward, who was reported to him as squandering his possessions. He's, he's your property manager, and he's, he's making a big mess out of everything. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? It's been reported to me, and if this is true, you're fired. Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. You can no longer be a steward. And the vocabulary here is what we look at when we study dispensations, when we study our stewardship in the church. And Israel had their stewardship, and the Gentiles had their stewardship. Ours is a stewardship, this, this, and we're serving our Lord in this stewardship. So the steward, or the manager, said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? 
I am not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. He, he kind of caught between a rock and a hard place and he doesn't like any of his options. If he can't be a steward, what's he going to do? So he says, I know what I shall do. So that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he's trying to prepare his golden parachute. He's trying to find a, a way where he can just jump bail, you know, jump off of this sinking ship and to have some kind of a, a life vest, a life preserver, something he can uh, fall back on with these connections. So when I'm removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors and he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And it's curious to me, he should know this, and if he doesn't know this, what kind of a, a steward is he if he's ignorant of the, of the amounts? Um, in any event, so he said, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. So he's cutting his losses. He's slashing the outstanding accounts receivable in half. And then uh, he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred uh, measures of wheat. So he said, take your bill and write 80. So he took a 50% haircut on the first one. He takes a 20% haircut on the second one. He's getting 80 out of the 100 on the second one. And this seems bad. This seems like it's just flat out theft. But the master is going to praise him at the end of this. And it's, uh, it's interesting that uh, and we don't, there's more details than maybe we, we need to know for the application on this. But uh, so uh, write 50, write 80. And now notice his master praised the unrighteous steward. The master's happy about this. He's happy about getting the, the 50 measures of oil. He's happy about getting the 80 measures of, uh, of wheat for whatever reason. Maybe he was expecting long-term to get less than that or maybe, um, we don't know whatever the, the, the thing is. Or maybe there's an advantage of having it now instead of over the long term. We, we just don't know. But he believes that uh, he's gotten a good deal out of this, that this unrighteous steward who is on the verge of firing um, because of this mechanism, I don't know that he actually goes through and, and, and fires him. He may just keep him on the job. So his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And that's the principle. That's the principle when it relates to this whole episode. And if, if we're frustrated because of what we don't know, we should just relax about that and then just take at face value the, the summary statement of what's being said here. And then the imperative to make friends for yourselves by the means of the wealth of unrighteousness. So if these are going to be your more shrewd stewards, um, what, what behooves us, there, I use that behooves word again, what, uh, what are we to do? In other words, are we wrong if, our, if, our, uh, if we hire somebody, an accountant or a, an automobile mechanic or a heart surgeon or whatever, do, do they have to be, do I want my heart surgeon to be a born-again believer? Or do I want my heart surgeon to be the best heart surgeon there is in town? Do I want, if I, if I have a contract I need looked over, 
who do I want to look over that contract? See. And, and is there going to be a shrewdness that can bless us? Are we using the world but not making full use of the world? Is, is another passage of Scripture. All right. They are more shrewd. And so when it comes to bribery, okay, it works. It absolutely works. And so how do we relate to that? We're not taking the bribe. We're not perverting justice. We're not, but we want to walk with wisdom in this world. All right. And so if, uh, if you are on a mission trip and you're in a place that's pretty hostile and the customs inspector is looking through your things and <clears throat> they notice that you've got a dozen Bibles in your bags and 20 bucks can get you out of that. What do you do? If you're a Christian. If you are, I mean, well, anyway. I'm, I'm on MP3 right now at the moment, actually. So this message could end up on the website and someone will listen to it. So I'm just speaking hypothetically <laughs> related to mission agencies. But I have friends with mission agencies that go into some pretty hostile places around the world. And uh, they learn how to, how to function in a way like Rahab the harlot, hiding, uh, hiding spies on a roof, letting them down, with a rope, deceiving the governmental agents that were sent to, uh, to uh, ask about them and all the rest. And so uh, I would believe that there would be Christians who can make faith decisions, faith decisions to slip the guy 20 bucks and walk through customs with the Bibles in their bag. And they would go... They would not be carnal. They would not be out of fellowship. They would have nothing to confess when they get to where they're going. That they can, in the integrity of their soul, as before the Lord, they made that faith decision to slip the guard 20 bucks and take the, take the dozen Bibles through customs. Okay? But I know other Christians that would be very un- uncomfortable with that. And they would not have a faith conviction to do such a thing. And they would not pay the fine or the, it's a bribe, let's face it. They would not pay the bribe. See? Well, make your faith conviction, make your choice as unto the Lord, but understand that the sons of this age are more shrewd with respect to their own kind, and we may be more biblically gullible in uh, in a lot of ways. See? Alright, that's what I'm saying on that. All right, we're going to close with one final passage because there's one circumstance in which bribery never works. Do you remember what that is in Proverbs 6? The one problem you can't bribe yourself out of is when you are in adultery. Proverbs chapter 6. At the end of the chapter... Uh, verse 32, I mean, there's other things you can do. There's a price you pay to break the law. There's a price you pay. Um, but when you're playing with fire, you're playing with fire. 
Can a man, verse 27, can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? No, obviously. So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Men do not despise a thief if he steals. That's understandable. All right. To satisfy himself when he is hungry. We get that. All right, you're hungry, you stole. That can be forgiven. Of course, there's going to be repayment. When he is found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. And so there are some things for which restitution can be made. Not adultery. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. It's a destructive lifestyle. Self-destructive activity. If you see someone in self-destructive activity, warn them, rebuke them, speak the truth in love and say, you're making self-destructive choices. Wounds and disgrace he will find and his reproach will not be blotted out. For jealousy enrages a man. There's a victim in this uh, uh, adultery scenario here. The, uh, The husband of the woman you're cheating with. Jealousy enrages a man and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be satisfied though you give him many gifts. Remember in Proverbs 21 we had the little bribe, the bigger bribe, and you know, eventually you could, everyone has their price, not for adultery, not for a man's wife. That betrayal, there's no restitution for that. All right. We'll come back next week and uh, move on to verse 9. We'll talk about concealing a transgression in love versus repeating a matter as a uh, divider. Separate intimate friends. You remember what separation's about? Separation is the concept of death. Death is a separation. And so you become a friendship killer when you are separating intimate friends friends. All right. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for truth. Thy word is truth. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.